glorious part of his character. You know, when God talks about himself, beauty is a part of the description. Glory is a part of the description. And so whenever we're engaging with beauty, we're actually engaging with an attribute of our creator. Uh, and so, it, 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 you know, to, to behold the beauty and the splendor of his creation is in a way to know him better uh, because of what he has left here for us to behold. Russ Ramsey is a pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and is the author of several books, including Struck, One Christian's Reflections on Encountering Death. We speak today about his latest book, Rembrandt is in the Wind, Learning to Love Art Through the Eyes of Faith, published in 2022 by Zondervan Press. I'm Matthew Wickman of the BYU Faith and Imagination Institute. Russ Ramsey, it's great to see you today. Thanks for coming on the podcast to talk with me. Oh, it's great to be with you, Matt. So I, I, I bought your book, uh, Rembrandt is in the Wind, at the most recent conference of the Society of Biblical Literature and American Academy of Religion. And I found that at the booth of the publisher, Zondervan, and they, they always have these big exhibit halls, and there's Zondervan's booth is in the exhibit hall, and there was your book. And I thought, what a compelling looking book. So I thumbed through it, and I thought, I want to buy this book. Went to the booth. Uh, to purchase it, and then and the person who sold it to me said, "Oh yeah, it's one of my favorite titles." So it got a good endorsement from even you know, before I even uh, read a page. <laughs> um, can you tell us about the origins of this project? Yeah, so um, so the, I dedicated the book to my art teachers from middle school and high school uh, because I grew up in a small town in the Midwest and. Um, it was a place that that you know it was farm country and uh and so i grew up around farmers and but these art teachers instilled in us um, a deep love for art and gave us kind of some tools for how to engage with art over the course of our lives and we went to art museums and so i grew up kind of in this place where the the people in my community were, were very pragmatic in a lot of ways but not um, not obtuse when it came to beauty. We lived in a very beautiful place. Um, but when it came to just kind of the, the more um, uh, academic or, or highfalutin side of art history and art, the analysis of arts, that wasn't um, really something that people were super excited about where I was coming from. And, and it wasn't the way that I learned to engage with art. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to... Uh, to engage with art personally, but also invite other people, um, but not through, uh, you know, analysis or, or heavily academic channels or, or, or anything like that, but really through storytelling, um, because that was, that's my community. Um, we're storytellers. And so, um, so as I started to get into some of my personal favorites like Van Gogh and Rembrandt and just look at their stories, the stories were just rich and deep and compelling and then they make you want to engage with the art yeah this is a book that has a number of really fantastic stories in it um and the stories are about artists and also about works of art or sometimes the materials out mm -hmm. of which the art gets made it's a you you do clearly mm -hmm. russ have a gift for storytelling and um that communicates itself very clearly in the book in a very compelling way um, you, you, um, I noticed the foreword was written by a acclaimed artist uh, who's also a former guest on the podcast, Makoto or Mako Fujimura, and he wrote a really beautiful mm -hmm. foreword, right? Uh, and, and he remarks in the foreword, and I'm quoting him here, 
that art makes possible our experience of the new creation on this side of eternity. In order to truly live, we must learn to see through the eyes of our hearts, through the veils of our darkening reality, into the illuminations of what artists have painted. So, and so it's a compelling claim. I'm wondering whether you agree with that. If so, what illuminations in art seem most vital to you? You know, I think when, when, a, when a painter um, paints a painting, they're not just presenting a, um, you know, a 24 inch by 36 inch picture. They're telling a story. And when you look at a painting, you, human beings tend to look at, at things in a certain sequence. Our eye goes someplace first, and then it goes someplace second, and then it goes someplace third. And a narrative unfolds when you look at a single frame, um, because that's how, that's how we're made. And so um, in, a, in a pragmatic world, in a, in a results-oriented world, uh, I think we, we can lose uh, an understanding of the importance of engaging with beauty, but there's a part of us that's meant to um, that's meant to really engage with the the transcendent, uh, mm -hmm. to be in the presence of things that stir things in our hearts that um, that mere data can't quite get to and can't quite raise. And so, part of the way art does its work on people, and frankly, part of the reason why there are so many paintings from five six hundred years ago that are still revered around the world is because they have this kind of transcendent ability to reach into the heart of a person and awaken uh, a sense of the story that is theirs and, the, and that they're living and and there's there's you just can't unless you're intending in intentionally engaging with beauty there's there's parts of you that just won't ever come alive um unless you're doing that and so that's so i i love what mako had to say there yeah it's beautiful isn't it you know we've had artists we so mako's the former guest on the podcast i've also had art historians on here before um uh katie kresser uh from seattle pacific's been a guest on here uh, talking about a book show in art history we've had heidi j hornick uh, from Baylor talking about a book she wrote in art history. It's a, it's a, art history is a wonderful way uh, to get a feel for the transcendent, you know, through beauty. Um, and, and I think that your book does this, I think, really beautifully itself. Um, and you're taken with beauty as a phenomenon. Um, but, but as you point out in the book, it's beauty in a particular kind of context. So let me read your book's opening paragraph and have you comment, if you would, on that paragraph. Yeah. You write this. You say, Henry Nouwen wrote, In the Return of the Prodigal Son, our brokenness has no other beauty but the beauty that comes from the compassion that surrounds it. Uh, close quote. So, so you go on and say, Our wounds are not beautiful in themselves. The story behind their healing is... But how can we tell the story of our healing if we hide the wounds that need it? This book is about beauty. To get at it, this book is filled with stories of brokenness. Compelling yeah, opening. Yeah, paragraph. I wanted to. Yeah, I, I wanted to frame it that way because one of my commitments in writing this book was no hagiography. Well, you know, which uh, if, if listeners are unfamiliar with that word, it's basically a biography of a saint intended to demonstrate why that person is a saint. So it's just the good stuff, right? And you can't tell the true stories of Michelangelo or Van Gogh or Edward Hopper or Caravaggio 
without having to tell a pretty pretty dark story. Um, and yet part of the the wonder of the beauty that they've created uh, through their work is is born out of the the darkness that was part of their existence, whether it was like anxiety and futility for Van Gogh or um, a, a kind of licentiousness that that plagued Caravaggio or you know the, the, the or Michelangelo being this kind of arrogant misunderstood savant you know who <laughs> yeah. who you know the 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 that part of the beauty that they were able to provide um came through a lot of inner turmoil and suffering and failure and sin if we can use that word uh you know that there's a, there's a lot of things that are that are in play there but but for me the reason that's so important is that's what intersects with our experiences right is i don't need somebody to hold up for me, somebody who I can't relate to at all because they're just so good at everything. Um, but when I'm moved by uh, one of Van Gogh's paintings and you can see the agony in the beauty of what he's doing, understanding where that agony is coming from, where that where that ache that's in all of his work uh, comes from, really helps me see the beauty of what he's trying to say so much better. I think I love that about your book, by the way. And you know, it's one thing to sort of uh, understand dark things because one is writing from a dark place. I read pl plenty of art history that seems to channel that kind of mood. But in your case, it really is you, you explore kind of these more challenged aspects of these artists' lives, but in a way that it's, it's really good, Russ, at relating it to our experience and at finding in it kind of these through lines of Christian theology or healing, you know, um, it's it's really really good uh, at this, and I, I really appreciated uh, that. In your in your chapter, the first chapter, the introductory chapter, you elaborate on ways that um, beauty works on us, and there are four things that you say beauty does. Right? Um, I like these. I wonder if you could comment on them really briefly. You say that beauty attracts. You say beauty shows mm -hmm. us where we're wrong, that it inspires creativity, and it arouses belief in God. C can you give us a brief sketch of how it is that beauty works on us in these ways? Sure. Yeah. Maybe I'll just give you sort of uh, uh, anecdotes uh, as a way of kind of illustrating, you know, the, the, the thing that drew, drew me to my wife before I knew anything about her was her beauty. Yeah. You know, I saw her from across the room and wanted to know more about her. Uh, and we're almost 30 years in, you know, to, to, to that journey together. Um, but, but beauty was, was very important in, in the beginning of, of that becoming a relationship. It shows us where we're wrong. How many people have ever said, what's the big deal with the Grand Canyon? It's just a big hole in the ground. <laughs> but then you go stand on the North Rim and you look at it and it is not just a big hole in the ground. It is a, it is a phenomenon. And, and in, engaging with beauty helps take our defenses down of, about things that we felt like you know, we feel like, oh, I, I, I've sized that up and I understand it. You know, no, no. When you when you're in, in, when you encounter the beauty of something, and it moves you, you're like, well, maybe there's more to this than I thought there was. Um, when it comes to inspiring creativity, uh, I've, I'm, I'm a musician as well, and you know, when I when I go to see a concert of a band that I love that is just excellent, you know, I saw Paul Simon not that long ago. Mm. Um, as a songwriter. I don't go see Paul Simon 
and leave feeling like I'm never going to write another song again because he's he's one of the greatest songwriters ever to live. I'll never come anywhere close. No, I get home from that and I just want to write songs um, because I've been in the presence of a really good songwriter. And so beauty kind of makes us want to reflect back more beauty. Um, and then belief in God, glory is part of his character. You know, when God talks about himself, beauty is a part of the description. Glory is a part of the description. And so whenever we're engaging with beauty, we're actually engaging with an attribute of our creator. Uh, and so, it, it, you know, to, to behold the beauty and the splendor of his creation is in a way to know him better. Uh, because of what he has left here for us to behold, and uh, so that, yeah, that's that's how I would sum those things up. Yeah, it's a great sketch. So the book <laughs> um, devotes chapters to nine different artists. Okay, you have Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Rembrandt, Vermeer, uh, Jean Frédéric Basile, uh, Van Gogh, Henry O. Turner, Edward Hopper, and Lilius Trotter. And throughout these um, different chapters, you discuss specific works of art that tie. Um, these pieces to particular illuminations of sacred or moral things and now we can't discuss each chapter alas I wish we had time to do that a five-part podcast kind of thing but I do <laughs> want to touch on at least a few briefly and if there's one that um, I don't raise that you want to discuss let me know okay um, the chapter on Michelangelo um, you discussed the sculpture David the famous David that uh, stands in, in Florence and in that chapter devotes some attention to the substance of marble and then to the specific block of marble from which Michelangelo fashioned his iconic sculpture. And in the context of that discussion, you make this observation, quoting you here, living with limits is one of the ways we enter into beauty we would not have otherwise seen, good work we would not have chosen, and relationships we would not have treasured. For the Christian, accepting our limits is one of the ways we are shaped to fit together as living stones into the body of Christ. As much as our strengths are a gift to the church, so are our limitations. It's a provocative statement. How do you glean that principle from the discussion of Michelangelo's famous sculpture? So when he took on the project of carving David from that block of marble, he was the third artist to work on that block of marble to carve David specifically from it. Um, it had been harvested from the uh, the Appuan Alps, uh, the marble quarries there, and brought down the mountains, across the sea, up the Arno River uh, to Florence. And so he inherited a block of stone that he didn't get to choose. And these other two sculptors had done some chiseling on it already, and they had bore, bored a hole through it between where his legs are um, that forced him to... That, that limited what he would be able to do when it came to creating a, an image of David. And so the David that we know and we see uh, that he made was was shaped in part by the work of other people and by the failings of other people. Like like they, the, their limits um, left him with this massive stone that he had to work with the imperfections of it and the and the attempts of the artists who had come before him. And so if he just had a virgin stone that had never been chiseled at before, who knows what we would have. But what we have partially is because there was a hole through the middle of it. where And so his legs had to be a certain way and he had to stand a certain way, which meant that he had to think, okay, if he has to stand a certain way, where do I want to, what moment do I want to capture? Um, of David and his story. And so the, all of it was kind of connected 
to that. And so we have this sculpture that we revere that personally, I think, is is the greatest single artistic achievement in the history of humanity, which is not to say it's my favorite work of art. It's not. And I know that's a ridiculously strong statement to make, um, but I kind of say it because it's ridiculous. And I would invite anybody <laughs> to just prove me wrong. Just just give me the other, give me the, the, the work of art that would, not, that would be that instead of David's. Um, anyway, Warhol soup cans, right? Yeah, no, (laughs) Warhol soup cans, not quite. Yeah. (laughs) You know, um, but, but yeah, so he had, he had to work with limits. And as a result of that, we have the David that we have, uh, today. And I, and I think about that, who, who in our, you know, who, who among us, um, doesn't have certain limits that, that make us have to rely on other people. Um, and, and how many of us don't have uh, the the attempts of other people to try to shape something that we have to then inherit and, and figure out how to work through on our own. It's, it's part of the way that the Lord sanctifies us. It's part of the way that the Lord grows us and matures us is through is through having to having to accommodate and, and work with things that maybe we wouldn't have chosen for ourselves. It's a beautiful point. I really love it. And and that resonates so much with my own experience. It's a hard lesson to learn though, right? That it's through one's limitations that one yeah. is empowered but to act in that, the world. The, yeah, but I mean that's part of the beauty of art, right? Yes, is, it is, is that art, you know, art, art, for me like story and art is a is a Trojan horse for truth. It can sneak a lot mm-hmm. of things past our defenses and kind of into the heart and before we know it, it's it's kind of spreading out and taking over and and uh, yeah, and I think that's that's one of the reasons I'm so drawn to art in the first place is because I know it's working on us before we know it's working on us. Yeah, fantastic. I love it. Okay, so a few pages later, you open a chapter with this observation right here. You write, throughout the Gospels, Jesus met social outcasts with compassion and reserved some of his strongest language for those who regarded tax collectors and sinners as people beneath the basic dignity of kindness. Uh, we dare not romanticize as part of Jesus' ministry by regarding those folks as on, the, on the fringe as merely misunderstood. For many of them, the ways they lived their lives added pain to those who loved them. It's important to remember this if we want to understand the way Jesus loved sinful people. He loved them knowing their lives were riddled with problems, and the way he welcomed them did not always immediately deliver those people he loved from the complications of their choices. That's, that's such a poignant observation, Russ. And you write this in reflecting on Caravaggio. Can you explain the connection between Caravaggio and that observation? Yeah, Caravaggio um, has painted some of the most uh, penetratingly deep pictures of the ministry of Jesus and his calling of St. Matthew, the incredulity of St. Thomas, which is the one that I think a lot of people know from Caravaggio. It's Jesus guiding Thomas's finger into the wound in his side. That's right, yeah. And, and there's, this, there's this deep sense of, of understanding of forgiveness and grace that comes through Caravaggio's work. But Caravaggio was a... Uh, was was a bit of a monster as a person like he he was a um one of his one of his uh biographers who was kind of a contemporary more a more contemporary biographer around, from around when he lived um said for caravaggio there there was only carnival and lent and nothing in between that he was either <laughs> holed up and painting these transcendently beautiful moving pictures of the gospel 
or he was taking the commissions that he would get from those paintings and he was drinking himself silly for three months and and partying and and but he also murdered some people like <laughs> like part of his carousing was was he he was a brawler and there were a couple of people that that lost their lives and altercations with him which put him on the run and he had to flee and he had to kind of stay in in motion so that he didn't get uh arrested and killed uh, for his crimes. And so to look at the life of Caravaggio and to tell the story, one of the reasons I was so drawn to his story for this book was because here's a person who's who's almost like a caricature um, of the, the, the struggles and the failings that we all deal with. Like his are really heightened, right? He, with murder and sword play and drinking and sex and all of the other things that were part of his, his story um, is that he's this paradox of corruption and grace coinciding in the same person at the same time. And we have, it, it's funny, one of the things that, that historians say about Caravaggio is most most all the record we have of his life is his art and police reports. And, you know, <laughs> that, that, that tells you kind of a, an interesting, uh, it gives you an interesting picture of this person. And so I felt like he was a really good extreme example of this paradox of corruption and grace that resides in the heart of any follower of Jesus Christ is that, is that my life has been, has been redeemed by the mercy and the grace and the sacrifice of Christ for me. And yet, I have all kinds of darkness inside of me that I know is there, um, and and we live in this tension, and we live in this paradox, and we live here in this place where you know where it's not that because Caravaggio painted these beautiful paintings, he must have just been then a really faithful, kind person. Um, he was just he was a he was a conundrum. <laughs> Absolutely. To be sure. Yeah, I love that. It's a great phrase, this paradox of corruption and grace. You know, a lot of us are close to people, uh, friends, family, whatever, who resemble uh, these people you're talking about here, um, these, um, these, these people who, are, um, who add pain to the lives of those who know them. Mm -hmm. um, and that has been instructive for me to learn how to be a better person uh, by learning how to um, be... Uh, to be friend and be close to, to such people, but you also recognize, look, it's in me too. And it's not like I, you know, I'm yeah. above that. The corruption and grace that informs that's the human condition. Uh, and Caravaggio, I mean, that it's interesting. That's such a fine painter, such a caricature of that principle. You know, it's an interesting oh, thing yeah. for me. Um, yeah. Okay, in a later chapter, um, the chapter on Basile, uh, you pose some questions that I find uh, really moving. Um, I think of this quite a bit actually these days. You, here's, here's, again, I'm quoting you here in the book. You write, what happens when a person's potential can be fully realized? When things like war, sorrow, pain, and death don't stand in the way? What happens when the best parts of what we have to offer develop unencumbered? We do well to wonder about such things because this is the hope offered in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Okay, so the gospel as the key to a life fully realized. What's the connection there, and and why uh, make that point in this chapter on Basile? Yeah, Basile is a painter. He was an impressionist, an early impressionist, and he's probably a painter that many uh, listeners have never heard of. Uh, and the reason you haven't heard of him is because he died very young in war. 
uh, in the Franco-Prussian War. But Bazille was a, uh, a very gifted painter in Paris. He was, he, and his friends, his circle of friends, was Monet and Manet and Renoir and Pizarro and all of the the you know uh, 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 the impressionist painters were were all a community there in Paris and they were all trying to do something new. I, I kind of liken them to indie artists in a in a in a pop world, right? That they were trying to trying to create. Um, something that was a little bit more rock and roll than than what was going on in in the paris salon and so in order to to do that they had to really come together and bazile came from means and he had this studio in paris and he would he he had all these other painters come over and they would paint together and he would share his art supplies with them when they were poor you know monet did caricature paintings and drawings on the street uh in order to afford uh, and so Bazile would like, he would buy Monet's paintings for himself as a way of funding Monet. And he's this person who, who part of his legacy is that he made, po he, in part, he made possible the community that became the Impressionists by giving them room to work and, and facilitating a place for them to be friends together and to uh, inspire one another. And so, you know, I think about that when I think about his his life was was cut short through through war but i wonder like had he had another 20 years to paint um not only what would we understand about bazile but what would we understand maybe differently about monet mm. and about renoir and about manet because of the friendships that they that they had it makes me think of tolkien and lewis and the inklings that group of of writers getting together in oxford and talking about narnia and middle earth you know and and you know we have narnia from c.s lewis but we have to understand that part of narnia is shaped by the influence of tolkien being his friend at the table, drinking a pint with him, and 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 kicking around the idea of now explain to me how this topography works again, you know, um, and and uh, you know that's part of the beauty of 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 the community that the impressionists had is that they knew they had to be together, and Bazile was was instrumental in in helping facilitate a lot of that early on. It's a really provocative question. What we would know differently about Monet, Monet, and others, Pissarro, etc. That's a really provocative question. I had not thought about that. I mean, the book raises it, um, and and uh, that's I, I really appreciate that. Um, all these chapters are so great, uh, Russ. They all tell really compelling stories. My favorite chapter in the book is the last chapter where you discuss someone I've never heard of. This is Lilius Trotter. Uh, can you briefly explain to our listeners why many or most of us have not heard of her and why that in mm -hmm. itself is already a significant fact? Yeah, she was um, uh, a young woman in, in London kind of during the Victorian era, and she was uh, a watercolorist. And her mother, uh, when she was a, a girl, her father died when she was young, and her mother, when she was a girl, uh, was... They were staying at a hotel where uh, John Ruskin was staying, and John Ruskin was a very famous painter and uh, art professor, and also sort of a uh, sort of a gatekeeper in a lot of ways for um, for the art scene in in London. And and Lilius's mother 
heard that Ruskin was staying at the same hotel and brought to him some paintings that her daughter had made. Um, you know, you should really see my daughter's work. I think you'd really <laughs> like it. Well, it turns out he was completely taken by it. Yeah. He, 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 and he was mystified by how this, this young woman who had no art, formal artistic training had such incredible instinct for, for how to, how to, present a composition and how to layer color and how to how to render perspective and all of these things and so he uh took her under his wing and and told her you have the potential to be the greatest living painter in europe um while this was happening she was a christian and she was serving the poor in london and she was serving um women who were in prostitution in london and learned about um a missions organization that wanted to go to Algeria to serve and minister to the women and children of, of Algeria, this, this Muslim nation. And she felt like the Lord was calling her to go do that. And she, uh, in the process of pursuing that call, uh, as she corresponded and, and, and continued to meet with Ruskin, he told her, you're going to have to make a choice here. Um, because if you want to be the painter that you can be, it'll require all of you. Uh, you you won't be able to go up to the other side of the world and and live and serve people and then also do this. You'll have to devote yourself wholly to it. And so she had this choice that she had to make. Um, and she decided that that uh, that she believed the Lord was calling her to go minister to these women in Algeria. And the missions organization that she had heard about this with actually rejected her because she was a woman um, and she was kind of frail in health. And so she, with two of her friends, they just decided to go uh, on their own. And so they did. And her, she ended up using her art to paint the gospel uh, because there was a language barrier. And sh as she was learning how to speak and as they were learning how to trust her, it gets back to the thing we were talking about early on, how beauty is a Trojan horse for truth, that she would paint these pictures of Jesus. She would paint scenes from the Bible. She would paint um, and, and use this as a way to illustrate to the women and children who Jesus was. Uh, but at the same time, she was also like caring for the felt needs. And she was um, spending most of her days uh, not painting. And one of the things that drew me so much to that story is a couple things. One is that how many of us, all of us can relate to having something that we did when we were young that gave us life and we loved and 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 we poured ourselves into. And then and then moments come up in our lives where we have to make a choice. Uh, you know, I want I want to marry somebody. And so you marry that person to the exclusion of all others. And you you know, I want to follow this profession. And so you get trained in that profession. And, and it means that you can't do these other professions, or at least, you know, you, you have to make, you only have so much bandwidth for that. And so I, one of the things I love about her story is, is just that she had to do that. Uh, and it was costly, but it wasn't picking something good over something bad. It was picking something good over something else that was good. And um, one of her friends said that the times when she, as she was older, the times when she most lamented or grieved um, the loss of the role that art played in her life, because she knew that she had become, that she wasn't as good as she had been when she was younger, 
because uh, she wasn't devoting herself to the craft in the way that she had. She said that the times that she most felt the sorrow was when she was actually painting uh, and that she carried with her uh, for the rest of her life, kind of having to, she had to deal with the cost of this obedience um, in a way that was always a little bit sad for her. And and that to me, uh, I think is is part of the, uh, this gets back to the idea of living with limits. It gets back to this idea that w we all carry that. We all have things that we wish we could do in the same way we did when we were in our 20s or, 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 you know, or we wish that we had been able to devote ourselves to some craft that we would be so much better at now, but life just kind of crowded it out. And, um, and so her story moves me in that way because it's not just a simple, happy, oh, look at her obedience to the Lord. She really just laid down this thing and, and wow. It's like, no, she laid down her art and then lived a really hard life uh, and continued to use her art, but not to the degree that she was able to before uh, or to the skill and felt the pain of that. Uh, and in all of that, followed what she believed was obedience to her creator. Which I find really beautiful about her story. Yeah. It's, I mean, we're so accustomed these days, Russ, to stories that where someone makes some sacrifice to pursue their own path, right? Um, mm -hmm. uh, they, they, they give something up, they pursue something, they, they make sacrifices in relationships or opportunities, and they, pr they pursue their dream. We're, we're, that story is very familiar. And in a lot of ways, it's a very important story. I don't want to knock that story as being insignificant or unimportant. But her story, it's different. It's, it's, she had that path in front of her, but she gave that up in the pursuit of a higher, you said, more transcendent cause. And that kind of deep sacrifice is one that's not as familiar to us. The sacrifice not of what I had to do to get what I most wanted, but to give up in some ways what I, in some ways in, in, in vocational terms, would most want uh, in terms of my own realization of my talents in the name of something that's larger than me, where I may not have as much talent, but I feel called to do it by a higher power. I find that really beautiful about mm -hmm. her story. In fact, one more thing about that, I'd like to get your comment on this. There are a couple of principles that kind of you play off each other in this chapter that I find really profound taken alongside each other. I wonder if I could read them and then you could comment on yeah. them. Um, here's two quotes from your chapter here. Here's the first. This comes from Trotter, who said or wrote this, quote, we can do without anything while we have God. Okay, that's the first. And here's the second, and this is something that you write, which is that after she gave up her service of God, uh, gave, gave up her service, if she gave up her art in the service of God, rather, quoting you, she carried in her heart the ache of having, of not having developed her art. It was the burden many artists, athletes, musicians, and craftspeople come to know when they must set to the side what they once hoped might be their primary calling in order to pursue another path. It is a sacred, lonesome kind of sorrow. Okay, so on the one hand, we can do mm -hmm. all things when we have God. And when we feel like you're close to God, you feel like you have everything on the one hand. Everything is had, mm -hmm. and yet there is this ache of sorrow. Um, taken together, those two experiences, there is something sanctifying about that to me, but also a really difficult path. Um, anything more you want to say in that in addition to what you said a moment ago? Yeah, I think... Part of part of the way that we love each other well and the way that we care for one another well is and the way we imitate Jesus is, you know, I, Isaiah describes him as uh, a man of sorrows who's acquainted with grief. Right. Uh, a, a lot of the quality of friendship 
a lot of the quality of, of loving somebody um, is being able to grieve with them. Uh, not just acknowledge that something sad has happened in their life, but to feel the sorrow, to relate to the sorrow. Mm -hmm. And part of the, the, the faithfulness of walking through life as a friend is walking through life with a capacity to grieve and to mourn the things in this world that are broken. And so maybe the succinct, most succinct way I would say it is when she says we can do without anything while we have God, is that sometimes what God gives us by his grace in this life is a measure of sadness that we carry with us to the end. Mm -hmm. That's beautifully said. You know, that Isaiah chapter, one thing, the phrases I love about it, and it's especially poignant in light of your book, is that phrase, um, there is no beauty in him that we should desire him. In other words, there's a kind of a brokenness, but yet that brokenness is precisely what is so beautiful in light of the larger mission we associate with Christ. It's this paradox mm -hmm. of beauty and brokenness, yeah. again, that you've been talking about in this book, I mean, so beautifully. Um, let me ask you one last question. I guess it's all the time we have, but but this is a great conversation, Russ. You're such you're so good. I, I really appreciate it. It's this. just it's flying by, Matt. It's been great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So um, this is a, a point you make in the book's um, brief epilogue, and you say that the history of art teaches us that we must follow our own vision. We can't have someone else's vision, right? And it's a very good point, uh, and amen to that. But at the same time, how do you reconcile? the lived experience and wisdom of that observation about following our own vision with, on the other hand, Christ's injunction that those who seek to save their lives will lose them, whereas those who lose their lives for his sake will find them. On the one hand, we have to embrace our vision. On the other hand, it's about giving up our vision, the name of the vision that God has for us. How do you reconcile those things in your own experience? Yeah, I think it's a matter of prioritizing whose vision comes first, you know? So if if the vision that I want to have for my own life is one where I don't need Jesus or I, I don't need Jesus telling me what to do, um, then that's not good. Uh, but if the vision that I have for my life is, is I want to be faithful to what he's called me to do, then, it, then the question that follows is, okay, so what has he called me to do that's unique to me, uh, that's unique to the way that I'm wired, that is this place where where my, as Frederick Buechner said, where, where my passion and the world's great need intersect. Uh, what, what do I have to bring um, to that conversation? And then, and then to lean in and take the risk of, of and, and to put in the work of, uh, and the discipline of trying to flesh that out and develop in that craft, uh, whether, it's, whether it's just somebody who, who is a, a keeper of knowledge about a particular subject matter uh, or somebody who makes things or somebody who, um, you know, d does something with, with uh, you know, has some sort of physical skill, uh, wh whatever it is, how, what does it look like for me to, to listen to the, the voice of the Lord in my own life and then seek to live out how he's, what he's put me here to do? Well, thank you for um, for uh, following, the, you know, the 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 path set out for you by the Lord and producing this book. It's a beautiful book, uh, Russ, and um, I as uh, and and I look forward to reading other things that you've written. And hopefully, you'll write again about art history. I, I hope that's in your future. Yeah, yeah, I am. I'm, I'm actually working on a follow up to this book that'll come out in about a year and a half. I think it's it's so I'm I'm a little over halfway done uh, writing it, but it's. 
it's uh yeah it's coming it's a lot of fun it's another 10 stories oh so terrific it'll be it'll be it'll be good uh looking forward to that very good thank you so much russ and take care yeah my pleasure thank you matt thank you for listening to this episode of the faith and imagination podcast this podcast is sponsored by the faith and imagination institute the byu humanities center and the college of humanities at brigham young university and is produced and edited by Sophia Snyder and Bobby May. The music for this podcast is composed by Ethan Wickman and is performed by Nicholas Phillips and Albany Records. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a review on your podcast platform. And if you're interested in other episodes, check out our website at humanitycenter.byu.edu. Thanks again for listening.